Good morning and welcome to today's CME activity. There is no commercial support and the speakers and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships. You will receive a SurveyMonkey link after today's activity. If you're viewing online, the evaluation link will be listed in the links icon at the bottom of the screen. I would like to introduce Dr. Josh Mugel, who is our Emergency Medicine Program Director. Oh, stop, oh, stop. Okay, um, we're going to use the microphones because uh, we have some people online. Um, we, we sent this out uh, to all the GEDS people, and I think a couple of people are online. Um, we also sent it out to all medical staff, uh, just in case anybody was interested in doing this. So this is one of our um, advocacy series. We do this once a quarter, um, our social medicine series. Um, and so uh, I, I wanted to invite Dr. Doss up uh, from Emory to give us this talk. So um, do we have people on the call? OK. Um, thanks, Nick. <laughs> Um, so, uh, Dr. Das is a um, faculty member at um, the Department of Emergency Medicine at Emory. Um, I got to know him uh, as a board member at, at the Georgia College of Emergency Physicians. So if and when you guys go to that conference um, or get involved with GSEP, um, you will hopefully have an opportunity to, to meet him, work alongside him, get to talk to him. Um, and the reason I asked him to come up here is because um, I appreciated and um, uh, was attracted to his advocacy specifically for uh, undocumented immigrant patients receiving dialysis. Um, so I know most of you have probably dealt with a number of these patients within our system, and the way we deal with those patients um, has changed already since the time you've been here. Um, there's a lot of challenges with that, uh, that specific patient population, um, but I asked Dr. Doss to come up and, and give his talk uh, about just being an advocate for patients in general from the emergency department. So the way I'd like to um, uh, kind of orient this is, is you have an hour, um, talk as much as you want. Um, I do like when we have visiting lectures, I give a, a lot of extra time at the end. Um, if you don't mind, if the residents just ask uh, questions about your career, how you get involved in things, um, and if you just want to give any general life and career advice to the residents um, at the end of your talk, I would, I would definitely appreciate that as well. All right, come on up. Thanks. Thanks, Jeff. Okay, so, um, I had the chance to get to know you all a little bit on, online yesterday, so I feel like I know you as people because I got to watch all your videos and read your, read your spiels and learn about your program. But I was really impressed by the amount of work and energy that you already bring to advocacy. So some of your interests that you expressed on the video, some of your blurbs online, faculty members who are doing advocacy work already. So I know I'm preaching to the choir in many ways. And so the goal for this talk is uh, twofold, high level, just to kind of bring us back to like why we're here you know, as physicians and what we do and why that all matters. Uh, and then the second part of the talk, we'll talk about uh, or discuss an example of work that we're currently doing, but just one example of ways to get involved uh, as an advocate, as a physician. So I don't have any financial disclosures yet, as stated. I'm still looking for some. Uh, but I am very actively involved in organized medicine, if you can't tell. Uh, I am drinking the Kool-Aid. And I hope you'll have a sip. So. My, per, my path to medical school was quite circuitous, but like many of you, I realized early on that medicine was my calling, right? This was my ability as a first-generation immigrant to live the values of service to others, 
practicing a profession and giving back to the community, right? So this is kind of what we all aspire to as immigrants, uh, whether you're a first generation or, or second, third, fourth, fifth generation, you know, this is part of our calling as doctors, uh, is being able to give back and care for the communities that we serve. And, and so I will tell you that it hasn't been a direct path. So the most important thing is that what you do matters, right? So the end where we're practicing, you're graduating as an attending, this is hard. The path that you've chosen, right, some, compared to some of your other colleagues who've decided to do other professions, uh, go into the business world, right, the, the amount of sacrifice that you have given is substantial, and it's worthwhile and important, okay? What you do with your career matters. You are not just another professional, and that's hard. It's hard in many ways because you want to be, right? You see your colleagues buying houses, having families, sending their kids off to school, and you're in residency, uh, working 80-hour weeks, getting paid minimum wage, calculated. It's probably minimum wage, uh, especially these days. And uh, it's hard when you see that. But the sacrifice is so important. And that's what some part of that what is what characterizes us as physicians, is that self-sacrifice for the greater good. And so what you do matters, and it's important to recognize, and what you do is different. So you can't hold yourself to the same standards as some of your non-medicine colleagues. And in fact, we, we live to a higher standard, and that's part of what it means to be a physician, okay? So we'll briefly talk about physician's role in society. And I think this is important. It kind of harkens back to the white coat days uh, when you're going through medical school orientation. But I think it's always important to remember uh, why and how we are unique as a profession. We'll talk about systems governing what we do as medicine. It's very highly regulated for a reason, you know, reasonable uh, cause. And then uh, the social contract is what underlies that. And then we'll kind of give an example uh, with the dialysis piece of uh, how I've been able to integrate that. So historically, going back millennia, physicians have served the role as healer, right? So this is the application of skill, knowledge, these days it's called science, uh, to ease the, the uh, illness and um, pain of others, right? So this is, this is kind of like the first thing that brings us together, is this role of healer. And we're all familiar with this. Society is somewhat familiar with this. A more contemporary role for physicians is that of professional. So I hope this is somewhat of an interactive conversation, which is why I'm not on the stage. But um, what do you all see in the picture on the right? Like, what are the various roles of a medical professional? What does that mean to you? Collaboration, right? So you see multiple different people in this, in this role. Can you lay out some of the players? Attending, so probably the person with the white coat standing up. Residents, right? And what's this interaction that's going on between them? Learning, right? So it's, it's not only learning, but it's structured, right? You all should know more than anybody of what this is like starting in your residency program, right? So building it from the ground up and recognizing there are guidelines, there's structure to this. This is not just like willy-nilly, go, come to show up to work today, let's see what we're going to learn. That's not how it works. It's very deliberate. Being one of the youngest specialties, it's very strict in terms of what Josh has to teach you all, right? So there are guidelines and things that you have to learn. But not only is the, the educational process very delineated, right, multiple board exams, you are the most tested profession, right, in society for a good reason. Because when people show up to you, they need to know that you know what the heck you're talking about, that you're going to take care of them and you've been appropriately trained. So that's the part of, part of it, right? So ensuring that the people that are taking care of folks in society are highly skilled and highly trained. But also, there's another end of this, is that we're self-regulating, right? So we don't have other people tell physicians how to treat patients. Well, they try, and, we're, and we'll talk about that later. But generally speaking, 
we have autonomy. Right? So society trusts us to take care of ourselves, to make sure that we are acting in the appropriate ways, learning what we need to learn, dealing with transgressions when they occur. Right? You hear about these every now and then, of physicians who overstep societal bounds, break laws, break morals, uh, and society holds us accountable for that. And when we, when we fail to hold ourselves accountable, you see things like doctors.ajc.com, where you, you know, if you look it up, you know, it, when you see that, you don't see what you envision as professional to be. You see sexual misconduct as physicians. Right? That's how AJC has decided to portray us. And this is what happens when we overstep our bounds. So it's really important to appreciate that trust that society places on you and our ability to self-regulate. And that's what the majority of this talk will be about. That's what advocacy is about in some ways, is our ability to take care of ourselves. So what does self-regulation entail? So believe it or not, and whether you think about this or not, when you walk into that exam room, there is a whole construct of social mores and, and morals um, and societal expectations when you walk in there and, and lay your hands on that patient, prescribe that treatment, prescribe that medication. And this entails a social contract. So the social contract is this, that we are going to use our expert knowledge, our willingness to put the patients versus altruism. So for example, when you call a plumber and they come out and they give you a quote, are they really doing the best thing for you? I don't know, right? They, they don't, they're not held to the same standards as we are. When patients come to us, for right or wrong, we put money aside, especially as emergency physicians, and we do what's right for the patient in that moment. And that's why they trust us so much. And if we were to do anything to betray that trust, it erodes their confidence in our profession and our ability to take care of them, right? So if they're not going to tell you the truth, whether they use drugs, and it happens, but eventually you can get it out of them, you know, that they're, that they're doing drugs or they're doing things that, you know, they shouldn't be doing, but it helps us take care of them, and so that's why they tell us, right? So it's so important to be able to honor the social contract and, uh, from our part, but also society has to honor its part. Right? And we see when some of these things have fallen through. Right? So what does society grant us as physicians? We get status, respect, financial reward. And someone would say, oh, well, like, you know, I could just look this up on Google. But you, know, you talk to your patients, you realize that you know, this is a little bit more complicated than looking things up on Google. They come in with their own differentials. And you realize that what you do matters and what you've learned is important. There's a difference all right, between you and society. And so then on the other side of the coin is what we should expect or what society should expect from us is that we're altruistic, right? So we're always going to act in their best interest, that we're competent, we're going to act morally, we are held to a higher standard. And I think it's tough for this generation and our generation uh, because a lot of what we do is very public. Before, you didn't have as much insight into the lives of physicians. So now these days, in many ways, we want to see ourselves as normal people. We you know, post pictures of our families on vacation, tweet about what we're doing like tomorrow, going to the gym. But the challenge is, is that public still sees us as physicians. As much as we want to be anonymous and normal people, we're not. What you see on the day-to-day -day basis changes you as a person. So don't fool yourself into thinking that you're just a normal person. Right? And, and instead, I encourage you to embrace that, right? embrace the humanity that you see on the daily basis to inform your own personal life and existence. But at the same time, you can't go share every little thought you have on social media because there are repercussions for that, because you're held to a higher standard. Okay? What questions do you have about this social contract? It really underpins all of what we do as a profession, and it's really important to understand the, the significance of that and how it may be different. 
Yeah. I have bad news. What's the, you never feel like that? It never goes away. Okay, all right. <laughs> so just get used to it. Driving up okay. here, I'm like, am I really qualified to give this talk? Okay. I don't know. There's probably better qualified people out, out there to, to talk about advocacy work, especially looking at the work you all do. I'm like, well, am I really going to tell them anything they didn't already know? Um, it never ends, right? But it's an ideal you you strive for. Yeah. It's not a, it's not a goal. It's the journey. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. I so like that. You, you're not alone. Um, so let's dive into this a little bit, a little bit more. So the altruism that we talk about. So this is doing something for the, the benefit of others without expectation of financial return on your own. Right? This is very straightforward. This stuff should not be questionable. Morality, integrity, uh, we all have a general idea of what that entails. Uh, but it's important to understand that when we do, when we do have transgressions, there, are, there have to be consequences. And this is part kind of goes back to our own self-regulation. Is that we have to be able to police ourselves, call each other out. You know, these folks are, who are physicians, you know, physicians out there um, downplaying vaccine, the effectiveness of vaccines, you know, um, pushing things like uh, unaccepted treatments, ivermectin for, for, you know, un, for unproven, you know, for COVID, for unproven, in an unproven manner. So these are things that we have to call out when we see it. Otherwise, the trust is going to lose its faith in, in, in us to be able to do that. Promotion of the public good. And this is challenging especially at the bedside, because you have a task and a charge with that individual patient in front of you. At the same time, you have a waiting room full of people and a community full of folks who aren't getting served. So how do you find that balance between the use of resources? And it, us of most professions or specialties probably have a better idea of what that looks like in, in practice. Right? We do this on a day-to-day -day basis. How do we allocate our rare time to take care of the patients that show up to our ER? Right? Um, so it's important to be able to find that balance between the individual and society, and that's a tension that we're always going to face, right? So it's just the reality of it. Uh, transparency. So we'll talk about this in terms of self-regulation. So this isn't a, well, let's meet at, you know, 10 p.m. Uh, in this room. Don't tell anybody where it's going to be, and let's discuss how we're going to run our business and, and take care of patients. No. We have to have transparency so the public has trust in what we do. So that's set up through medical boards, ideally. It's, and when we talk about state medical boards, there are public representatives on those boards that are, set by, that are seated by, as physicians. But the public needs to have some sort of insight in terms of how we are regulating ourselves. Otherwise, again, they don't have that trust. So we have to be transparent about how we conduct ourselves in, in community um, and as organizations so that the public can, again, have that trust in us. And then finally, the fiduciary responsibility we talked about with balancing the public good. Now, when you look down this list, I feel a little disheartened. And I think that's maybe a call to action. Right? So do we feel like we still have the same amount of autonomy that has traditionally been afforded physicians? Or is this eroding over time? Right? Do we feel like the public trusts us? Studies show that public still trusts physicians compared to most other uh, specialties or most other professions. So that's still there, but we have to be very judicious about how we use that trust and about how we conduct ourselves. Again, when we have transgressions, that erodes that trust over time. Just like trust that you have your family, your spouse, right? So the trust is earned, and once it's lost, it's very hard to regain. Monopoly. So this is something where there are statutes that allow us to practice medicine, right? So medical practice acts. This is a legal thing. You are able to do what you do as a doctor because the states and government has said that you can treat patients as a physician, and we're not going to tell you how to do it. Right? And that means diagnosing, evaluating, treating. 
There are other folks who are doing diagnosis, evaluating, and treating across the country that are not physicians. And it happens in our own state, and they're not physicians. But they do it under our licenses, under our supervision, right? And so looking at how's that, how that's playing across the country uh, gives me a little bit of heart, heartburn. Because like I said at the very beginning of the talk, you spend a lot of time, a lot of energy, learning what you need to learn to take care of patients competently. And now there may be other folks who are trying to do the same thing that you're doing, but have not invested the same amount of time, energy, and diligent practice to do that. And so I, I, I have concerns about that. I don't know if you have concerns about that, but it really keeps me up at night. And so when we, when we struggle with that, we also have to struggle with how do we find fit the unmet need? There's just not enough of us. And that's the reality of it. There are not enough physicians. And so what is someone to do when it takes four months to get in to see somebody in clinic? Should they just wait? Should there be some alternatives? I don't know. I mean, this is something for our generation to have, that we're going to have to figure out. because This is not sustainable. Right? So we have this monopoly power. How do we choose to exert that monopoly power? How is it, how is it perceived? Do we still feel, does society still feel like we deserve it? I'll give you an anecdote later that we'll talk about. Status and rewards, sure, compensation's there. Um, if you look at most schedules, it's pretty flat compared to everything else in society, especially the last year. I think you probably have a better pulse on inflation and what that means. Uh, but physicians, I don't know about the, the physicians in the room, the faculty members, but you could probably attest that my pay has not gone up in the last couple years, not significantly at least, compared to the rest of society. Uh, so you know, does society still value what we do? I don't know, it's questionable. Self-regulation, again, there's more and more people trying to tell us what to do. Insurance companies, fortunately, we don't have to deal with prior authorization, but a lot of our colleagues in medicine do. Uh, and that's just micromanaging, trying to basically dictate how we treat our patients. Right? And then this functioning health system. I think the last two to three years, if anything, has really demonstrated what can happen when resources are scarce or strained. And then there's a complete catastrophe of like COVID-19. Right? The get me PPE, right? why are we having to ask and create campaigns to advocate for personal protective equipment? It doesn't make any sense. So the challenge that we have as physicians and as leaders in our communities is addressing the shortcomings when they arise. Right? So the get me PPE campaign was a very thoughtful and important way that we can address when society is not giving us what we need and it's not upholding their end of the contract. Currently, we're in huge nursing shortages. So what are we as physicians going to do to advocate for changes in that? Our patients are suffering. We're suffering. By, you know, it's like you're watching the stone train wreck in front of you. And by, you know, as bystanders, we are in, in active participants. We're actively seeing this. So what do we do? How do we address that? It, is it our responsibility? I would argue yes. We need to hold society accountable to ensure that we have the tools necessary to take care of our patients and take care, take care of them. Uh, and then, the, again, the adequate resources thing. So that's the kind of two ends of the coin of the, our contract with society. I didn't mean that to be depressing, but hopefully, <laughs> hopefully this is re reminding you why you should care. Because we're not, allowed, we're not able to do what we do unless society hold, upholds its end. And society can't hold us to such a high expectation if they're not going to provide us with the same sort of resources, right? the same sort of ability to take care of and follow through on our end. So when we talk about regulation, there are two forms of regulations. There's the um, medical, so the, the, sorry, the state level licensure, 
right? So that's the state medical boards and specialty medical boards. So specialty medical boards de uh, derived about a couple hundred years ago with ABMS, with the American Board of Medical Specialties. And this is their, our ability as a profession to demonstrate to the public that we know what the hell we're talking about, right? So if you look at the logo, uh, the words at the bottom, the three pillars of our training, you know, ethics, honor, and skill. These are values or virtues that we want the public to know that we embody when we get board certified. This is why board certification matters, because we need some sort of structured body to demonstrate to the public that we know what we're doing. We've gone through appropriate training, and we're capable of taking care of them compared to anybody else out there who says they can treat them. The slogan at the bottom in Latin, prepared in mind and research, this whole thing is created. It's a structure, it's a, it's a construct to help society feel confident in our ability to take care of them. So it's not like a, you send your money in and you get certified type of thing, right? I mean, and most of you have gone through exams and you know, it takes time and preparation. You don't just show up. There are other bodies out there when that's kind of beyond the scope of this. But the point is that we have, there are organizations and institutions in place to ensure that the public trusts us to do what we say we're gonna do. Specialty boards um, are used for other reasons as well, right? So surrogates for credentialing. So when you get a job, they wanna know if you're board certified. Um, that you've gone through the appropriate training, like why reinvent the wheel? Like it's already very rigorous, why don't we use the same thing? The challenge is, is when board certification lacks the improvement in clinical practice. And that's something that we as individual diplomats have to hold our boards accountable. So uh, internal medicine is probably the poster child for how boards can go astray. So they're charging hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to their diplomats, their, their certificate, certificates, um, physicians who are practicing want to claim board certification, and making them take ridiculous tests that have no change in outcomes, patient care, and just generating revenue. So you're wasting people's times, you're not improving their ability to practice for practice to care for their patients, and you're taking their money. And, and then on top of that, you're investing in condos in Manhattan to boot with millions of dollars, right? I mean, the optics are terrible. Fortunately, we are part of, I think, my personal opinion, you guys can probably chime in, my personal opinion is that our board has been fairly responsive, right? We've gone away from high stakes exams. We're doing ongoing clinical uh, certification, uh, sort of uh, ongoing tests to ensure that, you know, you're covering the basics every periodically, every 10 years. You can space it out based on however you feel. I feel like the fees are reasonable, uh, and I feel like I'm getting some value out of it rather than just a huge time suck. Whether I like to do it or not, that's a different story, but you know, most things worth doing aren't always easy. So those are the challenges with board certification. But the goal is that the public should have confidence in, in that we know what we're doing. State medical boards, again, I discussed this earlier, are largely as a public body. Um, they're appointed and, uh, and driven through the legislature, right? So they, are in, they include members of the public to represent that public voice. Right? So you need individual patients or public to be able to speak up when they feel like them, something is astray or, or doesn't really fit or is not fair, you know, a way to air their grievances so that we can kind of work this out as a group. Uh, the challenge is that we don't regulate all those who are practicing medicine. Right? So in some states, for example, if you have free independent practice for NPPs and PAs, they are not always under the state medical board. And so how do, how do we hold them accountable? for the degree of practice, right? How do you hold them accountable for practicing medicine if they're not on the medical board? Medical boards at the same time have been reluctant to take on these other, <laughs> other professions uh, because they, they already are under-resourced. So how are they gonna regulate other additional people 
without additional resources. And so it's a huge political thing, but it's something that we're going to have to figure out as we move forward because the status quo is not working. It, it doesn't make any sense. When you have a nursing board that's regulating non-physicians that don't even that isn't even comprised of, of peers. And if we're the gold standard, that is the practice of medicine is the gold standard, then you would think that we would be on that board too. Right? Anyway, so what questions do you have about the regulation at the state and and uh, specialty level? I didn't mean to spend a whole lot of time on this. It's just kind of give you an overview of how the structure works. You are all part of this process, believe it or not. And so at, right now you're under a training certificate. Eventually you'll get your own license, uh, and then you'll be practicing on your own. You'll be doing your own CME. You won't have conference every week, believe it or not. Um, and, and you'll be responsible for that. But that's part of our professional duty. So there's, imp so there's some implications to consider as you leave today. Uh, regarding this piece of it, is that state medical boards are typically ge geographic. And if you live close to a state line, that means you have to take care of responsibilities for both state boards. It doesn't really make any sense because the practice of medicine is fairly unique, you know, fairly consistent from one side of the state line to the other. But regulations differ, and that's a consequence of our whole federalistic state system of governance. Uh, but it's something, it's a challenge and it's a barrier practice. Additionally, it can create barriers in terms of who gets certified. So this whole monopoly power of medicine. So does society feel like we still deserve that? I guess I would argue in some states it doesn't because it's granted the power, power to practice medicine to non-physicians. Yeah. So what do we do about that? How do we bring this all back together? We talked about state maintenance of certification and how sometimes the requirements outpace the actual implication on clinical practice. So we're going to make sure that training is relevant. Again, that's we sit on these boards for, for our board certification organization, so like ABEM is our board, uh, and physicians, community, community practicing docs. I think the president currently is a community doc of that board. And so it's important for us to know who those people are so that when we do have issues, we can raise it to the people who can make decisions and, and impact change, right? So we can move the needle. Uh, and then we talked about the potential for abuse of self-regulation. So to recap this first part of the talk, it's complex. There's a lot of laws, most of them occur at the state level, uh, that regulate what we do, for better or worse. But that's how things get done. And we'll talk about one example of how we can change that. Um, when we feel like society isn't holding up its end of the bargain, we should feel empowered, or obligated at least, to do something about it. So give me the PPE, when, it, when we had, um, and we still have firearms deaths, right? So this is our win. Right? This is something that we, as people seeing patients who come in, as a result of gun violence, need to speak out and say, hey, something's got to change. The status quo is not OK. Opioid epidemic, I mean, where, do we, where does this end? I mean, this is, this, this is kind of what we do, right? We're at the front lines of everything. Uh, so I would argue that as your role as an emergency physician, you are the canary in the coal mine. You are seeing the societal issues that happen. And everybody's going to have a different interest. And, and this isn't to say, you know, you need to become an advocate like me. There's plenty of ways to advocate. Right? You advocate every day at the bedside, getting your patient to CT, right? getting the consultant to come down and see them. That's advocacy work. Getting your patient to stop smoking, right? that's advocacy work. So that is no different than it is to talk to a legislature about a law, about maybe ensuring women have access to prenatal care or ensuring women have access to abortion. right? So this is important because we are in the front lines and we see this at the day-to-day. -day. We have the stories. So I would encourage you as you go through residency, 
write down those stories of those patients that you see that have moved you or you felt like something is just not right. Because you never know when that story is gonna come in handy. You're in, you're in the room with a legislator or you're in the room with someone who can make a difference. And you can share with them that. And I think that really makes it tangible. Stati no one cares about statistics. It's all about being moved about the personal human experience. And you have a front row seat to that as an emergency physician. All right? And so finally is to be able to actively advocate. So how do you then take that story and make a difference in the world? And I would tell you that you have a different, uh, the ability to make that difference on a much larger scale. Yes, we treat patients at the bedside day to day. And today, or whenever you go to your next shift, you will help at least a dozen people in some way. But your ability as an advocate on a larger scale can help you help thousands, or hundreds of thousands, or even millions of people in a different way, using the same skills that you already use. Right? And you're getting this through residency. So I'll give you the example of hemodialysis. So I was fortunate to be doing, going through this, and Josh was on the board, and we were talking about this, and, and he was so kindly reached out and put me in touch with a reporter at the AJC who was working on issues of disparities in care. Uh, and so it really, and sometimes the stars just align, right? You're working on things, and you're kind of doing your little projects, and you have an interest, and then eventually something strikes, and you know, the momentum starts to build. So this, for me, started when I was looking at the policies for MAG, and uh, I'll go back, go that in a minute, but generally speaking, you probably all know the problem, right? You don't have to read the slide. Patients in Georgia who are undocumented and don't have a lot of resources have no other way to get hemodialysis. Hemodialysis is a life-saving treatment. Without it, you die, right? So if they don't have anywhere else to go, they can't get into a clinic, where do they come? How many patients do you have? Do you know? Do you know them by name or yet? I know. Yeah. Dozen, half dozen? Um, yeah, so we, we I, I think before, so we, we recently actually changed our, oh, sorry. We, we changed our model recently to um, give everybody dialysis um, and, and to basically not be able to provide dialysis for people who don't need emergent treatment with the caveat that we would be able to find chairs for a lot of them. And so when we made that, that policy change, we were able to find chairs for a lot of our people who came in frequently to the emergency department for, for dialysis, and then we got a lot more. So, you know, so, so I think currently we probably have in the 30s. Um, of, yeah. Yeah. Have the numbers changed since we changed our criteria? The numbers haven't changed, but the actual people. So I think they actually got chairs for a ton of people. And then we just got more more patients um, uh, needing chronic dialysis. And it, and it comes in these waves, right? So you'll have a bunch of people. The hospital system will realize this is not sustainable. This is not a very good use of resources. Let's find them chairs, right? You find chairs. And then more people come, and you're back to square one. right? So it's a cyclical thing. And, and it's hard to see these people come in. I, I know of a handful of them at, at our shop, at least. That could, yeah. Right, so chairs is just being covered, right? So chairs means that you get three times a week dialysis at a dialysis center, not the emergency department. Right, so they're called chairs because you go, you sit in that chair for a couple hours, you get dialyzed, right, and then you go home. Uh, and it's tough, right? It's tough to maintain a job, it's tough to take care of your family, but the reality is that, you know, aside from transplant, there's no really other alternatives. You know, you can consider peritoneal, but that has its own, own issues, it's a peritoneal dialysis, and so, this is life-saving treatment for these folks. They have nowhere else to go. And the challenge is, is how often do they get dialyzed most places? I, know, I think here you're probably doing three times a week, I think you said. But that's not the standard. 
Like three times a week is a lot of resources. And I'll talk about that in a moment. But most places, it's twice a week. So what happens when you're getting underutilized for months to years on end? What do, you think, what do you think happens to mortality and morbidity? Yeah, you die faster. Right? You're perpetually hyperkalemic, perpetually acidemic. I have a guy that comes in. His pH is always 7.1. I mean, that cannot be good for life long term, right? And, and perpetually volume overloaded, right? Then you run into cardiorenal or cardiohepatic. You, know, you run into or, uh, renal hepatic disease, right? So you run into all these other comorbidities and complications from under dialysis. Not to mention that having dialysis in and of itself increases your mortality 50%, right? I mean, being on dialysis in general is not good. And then you're having that further. And these are young folks, typically, right? In their 20s and their 30s with families. And so it's tough to, for us, right, to see that. The moral hazard of seeing this on a day-to-day -day basis, moral injury, is, is hard because you know they deserve better. And so that, for me, and, and a number of my colleagues, has um, prompted us to, to work on this issue because it's very tangent and relevant to emergency medicine, right? This is something that we can do something about. This, is, this should be a no-brainer. What, based on what I'll tell you in a minute. So we talked about the mortality. Uh, we talked about the catheter-related infections. Other states have figured out how to make this work. Right? So a number of those states, the green ones, have figured out solutions. And they're not all liberal states. Right? You would think this is a liberal social issue. Not necessarily. There have, been, there have been some red states who have figured out how to make this happen because the numbers work. So we looked at the data at our shop. Is that here? We looked at the data at our shop, and it costs, I don't know, about twelve to $1,400 per person per session to take care of. So for you guys, that's three times a week. It's like five, five grand a week to take care of a person. And this is not a short-term treatment. How much do you think it costs in an outpatient dialysis center? Do you think it'd be more in a clinic? It is less. How much less? Half that. Two to three hundred dollars per session. Yeah. That yeah, that's the cost. That's the cost. That is that's the cost. Yeah. No profit, just cost. Here we are. Right. So this this is the current state of affairs. We are and, and our cost is literally like the cost. Right. So the cost for an ED bed is about that much, right? So to bring them in, the resources that we take to work them up, to screen them, I mean, this is all just in, like, we are a very expensive place to take care of people, if you haven't figured it out yet. Um, and that's just our cost. That's not what we charge people. So, you, get, you know, you ask, well, why are we doing this then? Right, so it's, it's all politics. Right? And so if it costs a fraction of the amount to take care of these folks in the outpatient setting, why are we doing it in the emergency department? That's the whole premise of what we're trying to accomplish. Right? We're trying to get funding for these folks. And, and, and it gets complicated. It's not as red, white, red, uh, sorry, black and white as, as that. Right? So the, the funding source is different, too. Right? So the hospitals will bring these people in. They get emergency dollars from the state, dish payments, so disproportionate share. And you know, we'll, that's kind of beyond the scope of today. But it's funded in different ways, different pots of money. But ultimately, we are all paying for this one way or another as taxpayers, as citizens. And I think that's the, that's the story that's, that's gotten lost, is that there is a societal cost 
for this, and it's being born by somebody, but we can also spend a whole lot less and accomplish the same thing as a society. And so the goal is to raise awareness within our state. There is a mechanism called emergency Medicaid that allows government dollars to be able to use to be able to use to take care of folks for this cause, right? So instead of giving it to the hospitals, saying here take care of these sick patients when they're once they're admitted, and you know these people don't always go home, right? They come in for days sometimes because they're so sick because we've underdialyzed them, and so that's just the low end of cost on people who end up going home. But what if we could prevent their hospitalizations altogether, or at least significantly reduce them by getting them hemodialysis in clinic? Why wouldn't we do that? Right? So the goal is to help lawmakers understand. So there's two different ways of going about this. One way is regulatory change, saying, so emergency conditions covered by emergency Medicaid are basically um, dictated by the state in, in, legis in the, uh, the, co the code. Right? And so, so hyperkalemia, Right, so the reason they get emergency dialysis is because hyperkalemia, heart failure, and hypoxia are emergency conditions. But routine dialysis isn't. So you can change the code, saying, hey, we're now going to include outpatient dialysis as an emergency condition that should get covered. So then dialysis clinics will get paid based off of that pot of money. They don't have to go to the hospital, don't have to get admitted, don't have to get a bajillion dollar workup that we normally do. That's one way of doing it. Another way is basically carving out Medicaid for these folks so that they get covered through the same, I mean, because the money, remember, the money at the end of the day is a zero-sum game. The money is all the same money that we have to take care of people in our society. So the other, other way is just to give them Medicaid coverage to, to take care of their dialysis, right? They'll keep them healthier, they'll get better health care, their diabetes will be better controlled, blood pressure better controlled, dialysis, obviously, renal care better controlled. Overall, it's gonna cost a lot less money. You know what even costs less money than that over a lifetime? other than dialysis? Transplant. Yeah, transplant's so cost-effective when it comes to end-stage renal disease and renal replacement therapy, right? But try raising that when people who are on the list can't even get kidneys, right? So again, it's a societal issue, right? So we, unless we have more organs, we can't get people transplants, and obviously people have gotta be able to take care of their transplants. Overall, they are still cheaper than dialysis, hemo and peritoneal dialysis. Uh, but barriers to care, right? There's still so many barriers to care for these folks. So incremental change is the name of the game. I love Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, I was, I'm a huge or was a huge follower of her. Incremental change, right? So you're not going to change the world overnight. I'm sorry to break it to you. But incremental change. So what can we do to move the needle forward? Well, maybe perhaps it's getting these people covered so that at least they don't come to the ER so that we could take care of the heart attacks, the strokes, the trauma victims that come in, and not have to worry about, oh, is that person hyperkalemic, or are they gonna code in my waiting room? Right, because it happens. Uh, and not to mention the, the moral injury of having to see these folks day after day die in front of you. I mean, that's, that's a whole other challenge, right? And so we've created this group uh, based out of Emory Grady, certainly open to anybody. Obviously, you all, you all have a vested interest in this as well, uh, to create a change for our state. So how do we create a funding mechanism? How do we reach out to the Medicaid administrator um, to make this palatable, right? Because at the end of the day, we are talking about undocumented folks, right? And the current state of affairs in Georgia, at least, is that Georgia isn't very interested or has not demonstrated a lot of willingness to take care of folks who are undocumented, right? I mean, it's, it is what it is. At the end of the day, we're still paying money to take care of these folks through the ER, right? So we need to figure out some kind of political issue aside, how do we take care of folks and save the state money? 
And that's kind of our goal right now. It's like, this will save the state money, we take care of folks, ease up ED congestion for people who actually need to be there uh, for unpreventable diseases. Um, I guess you can argue what that defines. Um, but uh, as a way of improving care for everybody, saving the state money, right? So that's our initiative right now. Um, you don't have to read all this because I just explained it to you. So I looked at the MagPod. How did I do this as an individual? So what was my role and participation in this? So I, I'm very in, involved in AMA and Medical Association of Georgia, like the whole medical association thing, right? So that's kind of my shtick. Uh, so I looked at our policy compendium, and, I, and it, I looked, well, what is our policy on caring for undocumented patients? This is what I found initially. I don't know about you, but I found this a little disturbing. It's like, this is the organization that I belong to. I mean, should they really be saying illegals? That seems kind of offensive, doesn't it? So through, through editorial change, we were able to change that to be more humane, right? So undocumented immigrants, right? That's, that's kind of who we're taking care of. Uh, so that was an incremental change. So we changed the way in which we think, because words matter. The words you use matter, right? So we're not talking about diabetics. We're talking about a person with diabetes. Right? So, so these things, this is incremental. Uh, so we talk about undocumented immigrants. And then we bring up a resolution. So I reached out to our nephrologist at Emory and Grady, who sees these patients on a day-to-day -day basis, and say, hey, is this something that you guys are interested in working on? And so we wrote a resolution. And so that resolution eventually got adopted to the House of Delegates, which meets every October. And we were able to reverse the current policy, saying that no money should be spent for this, these people for any reason, just something that's more reasonable Right? This isn't even the language that we wanted, but we, we compromise, right? Because you're not going to get everything you want. Uh, we compromise and say, all right, well, let's come up with financially sustainable ways to take care of folks who show up. Right? So, so now MAG has policy to support this. So the way this works is that organizations will lobby on behalf of issues if they have policy. And it's all driven by this policy compendium, which is a document. ASAP has one. MAG has one. Uh, AMA has one. And so this is how their lobbyists determine what, where to stand on certain issues, right? So that is kind of like their Bible, right? If, you, if you're a religious person, it's, it's their Bible of what they stand by and what they stand for. So if it's not in that, they don't really have any ground and they can't really speak up on anything. So you got to get it in the policy compendium uh, so that then when these issues do come up, they can go up and say, hey, we strongly believe that this should happen, right? And all of our members, all the thousands of physicians in Georgia, MAG only accounts for 25% of them, or 25% of the, the physicians in Georgia are part of MAG members, right? Um, but Whenever anything happens at the state and they want to know what physicians think, they go to MAG. So whether you like their policies or not, they are the de facto authority on physicians in Georgia. Sure, there's ACP, the emergency docs, everyone has their own kind of spiel and thing, but this is the house of medicine. And so it's important that if there are issues that you care about that come up before the legislature, that you, know, you have your advocates on board. You need to know who your stakeholders are, who your lobbyists are, who's working for you, because you're here working. They're there working to represent your interests, right? So you need to make sure that their perspective, that your perspective is informed to them. And so Josh was, as I said earlier, kind enough to put me in touch with one of his colleagues at AJC who got us on the front page with this issue, right? So this is how we slowly raise awareness about this important issue. And so the next steps forward, we're building coalitions. So Emory, Grady, um, the Hospital Medicine Association, GSAP, MAG, everybody has signed on to this letter saying, hey, we think this is something that needs to happen. Right? So the next step is to submit this letter to the, the Medicaid administrator and say, we have all these constituents 
and all these stakeholders thinking that this is a good idea. Let's have a meeting. Let's talk about it. Well, let's run the numbers. So in the current process, we're looking at the current numbers and how, uh, what, what are the expenditures in Georgia? Where do we stand? Because you've got to have numbers. Just like I told you what the, what the numbers were, we got them from research. You had to go to the clinics. You had to look at the financial records. Uh, we did a paper at this at SAEM talking about what, what is the cost. Because without that cost number, it's hard to make the cost argument. So in that sense, you've got to have the data. You need the compelling stories and the data to back it up. Right? And so right now, letter to, letter to the Medicaid director, these are all the organizations uh, that have signed on. We're always looking for co-signatories. I mean, the goal is to have a statewide represent, representation of health systems and organizations. Right? This is not an Atlanta issue. This is a Georgia issue. And they're, un, they're under-dialyzed or undocumented patients all across Georgia that need this sort of access. And so how do we get that? And so it takes a coalition, right? So I, as a physician, am only one piece of this. So Lauren Casper, she's a nurse practitioner. She led one of the initiatives at Grady, and she's leading this charge of doing this. So this is like team-based medicine, just like we practice in the ED, right? We can't do it alone. We need partners. So you need people who are on the front lines who see this on a day-to-day -day basis from different specialties. You need the nephrologists. You need the nurse practitioners who can share the patient stories. You need the finance people to be able to run the numbers and talk about that. The health system leaders, executives saying, yes, we believe this is a good idea. We're willing and on board to support this. Because in Colorado, where Dr. Lilia Savantis started really one of the biggest initiatives to get folks covered, um, she had to get the healthcare organization on board they were getting millions of dollars a year, actually, from emergency Medicaid to take care of these patients. The hospital was. And so that was a big ask. But the hospital system realized, like, well, it's really not in our best interest to be taking care of these folks, and it's not the best thing for the patients. So we are willing to forego the millions of dollars in the best interest of these patients, because we know like, it's a capacity issue too, right? If you free up beds, you can take more insured patients as well. Right? So you can take care of insured patients and insurance rates if you don't know, or reimbursement rates are higher than Medicare or Medicaid. Uh, so that matters at the end of the day. Uh, and so you gotta, you got to find a way for those, those objectives to align. So if anything, my, the MBA taught me that money makes the world go round. And so if you can't make a sound financial argument for it, it's not going to happen. I mean, the motto is no margin, no mission. So margin is that amount of money that you make, profit you make. If you're not making any profit, you can't do good things if you're losing money. And so at the end of the day, whatever you want to accomplish, that has got to be at the, the, the ground level. Yeah? OK. So it takes a coalition to do it. Now, I did some research, like I said earlier, and you have a lot of advocates in this room already. Right? So I'm preaching to the choir, and I am so proud of you guys and so proud to be here to share this with you, because I know that you guys are drinking the Kool-Aid. And my hope is that you will take the next step as well Right, so more, some more, uh, Dr. LaFore. And uh, obviously, can't have a lecture without Dr. Mugel's face in it. Um, so you're all leading the charge. And so it's so, it's so awesome uh, to be a part of this organization uh, and to, to be here to be able to share this with you. For me, advocacy work is wellness. This is how I deal with the frustrations I face on a daily basis. Right, you can go, you can. Throw a big tizzy fit, get mad, scream, break things, or you can try to like change the system. Right, so this is my my small effort to make improvements on something that I'm not happy with. Right, and this can be anything. It doesn't have to be, you know, something like this. It can be on a, on a little scale basis, small scale basis. Right, so you go to your carts and nothing's stocked. You work to getting those stocked. Right, I mean, so this is we are problem solvers inherently as emergency physicians. 
And so this is just using that same toolkit to solve other problems, right? So advocacy is part of my wellness. It's a healthy way of coping with frustrations. Uh, and it's a skill. It's something that's practice, right? It's not one and done. You continually iterate, just like your central line skills, right? So you're putting them in, you get better at it, you get faster at it. You see what the complications are sometimes. You pop along, you learn. This is no different, right? So it's something that has to be practiced. And so I always take my residents to the, to the Capitol. Uh, we're actually going on the 31st, um, 31st in the morning, Tuesday morning. If anyone's off, you're always, you're welcome to join. Right? There's no tribalism with me. Like everyone's welcome. The more, the merrier. So July 30, uh, sorry, January 31st, we're going to be going to um, the Capitol to do a Hill visit. It actually pairs with Mental Health Day, so we're going to partner with that organization and get some grassroots experience. And then later is going to be, I think, Physicians Day at the Capitol. So those are those are all the organizations. Uh, uh, did it come in there? <laughs> yes, Schoolhouse Rock. So great way to understand how policy becomes law, right? So. If you need a primer, it's great. It's like 15 minutes. But the, the, I mean, it works at all levels, AMA, House of uh, Delegates, um, the State House, the Capitol at the, in DC, right? So similar process. Uh, so Physicians Day at the Capitol is going to be February 8th. You are all welcome to join. If you're not MAG members, you can take a screenshot of that QR code. I'm happy to pay for your membership. Just shoot me an email, sdos at emory.edu. I'll cover your MAG membership, right? So take a screenshot. If you're interested in showing up, I'm happy to cover you. And this is multi-specialty. We'll go, you don't have to do any preparation, you just show up with your white coat. We'll give you the talking points. You get to hear about what the important issues are, meet some of the legislators, and just get an idea of how the process works, right? Just kind of dipping your toe in the water, very low, uh, low effort on your part, okay? So if you can show up, that's, that would be wonderful. You need to be a member, I'll, I'll, I'll cover you. Like I said, just scan that and shoot me an email and I'll take care of the end. Um, so that's another opportunity. And for emergency medicine, LAC is a wonderful opportunity in DC, the end of April, uh, beginning of May, where we have a meeting and we do it on the national level. So has anyone been to LAC? Okay. It's an open invitation. Uh, so it does cost money. So I don't know if you, had, you guys have funding for travel. Um, they do have scholarships for residents through EMRA. If you're not a member of EMRA, highly recommend that you join. And they have a very robust health policy section. They have a huge advocacy handbook that has the nuts and bolts of how to do this, right? So much better than I could probably ever explain it. Um, you know, the resources are there. So it's really all for the wanting. That's all I have today. ASEP is you, mission statements. These are important issues that were discussed at last ASAP council meeting. So this is kind of like our specialty body. And those references. So what do you all want to talk about? Hi, Nick Johnson again. Yeah, Nick. Um, can you talk a little bit to uh, so the uh, undocumented immigrants, it seems like there are many of them coming directly from other countries to the area here to initiate dialysis. And I guess I need some insight as to what happens or doesn't happen for them in their country of origin, maybe for simplicity's sake, just pick Mexico. And are they receiving any healthcare hemodialysis? What I'm assuming that wherever they're coming from is not treating them adequately. 
so they show up here and get subpar treatment compared to the rest of uh, American citizens, but it still seems better than what they're receiving because they keep coming. I don't know, maybe that's ignorant of me, but just help, give me some insight, please. Uh, you know, that, those are great questions, and I think those are, those are questions that everybody has on their mind. You know, what, tell me more about this population, and you know, how, did it, how did it even come to be? The data doesn't demonstrate people crossing the border to get dialysis. The data demonstrates that these are people who've been here for five years or more and end up needing dialysis. Right? So they are here already, working, doing the jobs Americans don't want to do, right? Um, working kitchens, doing lawn care, renovating houses, that kind of stuff, right? They're already here working, end up with renal disease, and then needing dialysis. The other question that people often have is, well, if we do this, people are just going to come to Georgia, right? Well, I'll tell you, not too far from here in a state called North Carolina, they cover folks for dialysis through emergency Medicaid. And people are not driving from Georgia to North Carolina to get dialysis. Why don't they do that? The same reason you're not driving for go to go to Walmart in North Carolina, right? You have ties down here, right? You live down here. This is where your family is. I mean, Lauren Casper tells me stories of folks that she's met uh, at Grady, and it's like, hey, we you can get taken care of in North Carolina. Like, you don't have to do this. And they're like, well, my family's down here. I live down here. So it's a very real concern. So people aren't really traveling. Uh, two states that offer it, at least in large enough numbers, to demonstrate that that really is leading leading increasing rise. It's probably people who are already there, uh, and a population that's growing in general, just you know proportionally, that ends up needing it. Does that answer your question? I think so. Yeah, it's very. I mean, it's a very big concern for folks who are worried about. Well, is this going to blow out of control? The data doesn't show that. At least in all the states like Colorado, Arizona, North Carolina. Uh, in states where you you know would be attuned to these sort of concerns, the data doesn't seem to, to follow. Yeah. Is there um, any information on what the primary cause of a lot of these um, this population's renal diseases? Like, is there a way to take it one step further and kind of intervene before they need dialysis? Well. That's a much bigger ask, isn't it? I mean, yeah. preventive care? <laughs> it's hard enough to get citizens to do that. Uh, it's the same sort of stuff, right? So they have a higher incidence of diabetes and hypertension, right? That's what drives their renal disease typically. Yeah. I was just going to build off of uh, Nick Johnson's question kind of about going through states. And you're talking about not Georgia and North Carolina, but thinking about certain you know, towns on the border of these states, and we have South Carolina right on the border. We have Chattanooga, which is 20 minutes across the Tennessee border. Yeah. Um, do we see any evidence if we were to do it here? Are we going to start taking the load off of Tennessee hospitals, for example, or hospitals in Chattanooga? Yeah. Kind of checking them the 45 minute drive here. <laughs> That's a good question. I don't know if there's data about border border uh, um, cities. Right, so that that that's a valid concern. It's like, are we going to see that? I have to look at the data. I mean, certainly these other states have cities on the borders between other states um, that are doing that. But again, it, you know, these folks often don't necessarily have the resources to travel three hours or four hours, maybe forty-five minutes. But still, transportation is a big concern and a big restraint on this population. Yeah. I have a quick question. So those financial numbers that you mentioned earlier about the two fifty versus the fourteen million or whatever it was. Very enlightening. 
would there be a space issue um, for actually physical space for these guys to get their chairs if, if, if that gets passed and, and has, hasn't that been looked at? Is that even a thing to worry about? The way I think about that is that you know, I think capitalism is very strong in the United States. And I think, you know, uh, um, uh, Vida and Fresenius, I think they're making pretty good profits. And most of their patients, again, are government-insured patients, right? Uh, and so I think that even then, the, if the capacity is there or the demand is there, they should be able to expand capacity. I haven't heard any issues with that yet, but I will keep you posted. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, that hasn't been a problem from my understanding of the literature, like the, the building the capacity. Because that I mean, makes sense from the capitalism standpoint. Be a reversal if they come, we'll build it. Yeah. Opposed to the other way around. Yeah, so I, I think that in what's played out is typically that these people are, once you have a funding source, right, zero dollar, you know, 300 is better than zero. So once you get to that kind of similar comparable Medicare, Medicaid rate, uh, it sounds like people, places are able to get work. Yeah, it's mind-blowing, but you know, we ran those numbers and like, it's kind of a no-brainer. I mean, even even if you're against you know encouraging immigration, at what point does it become financially, you know, val uh, you know, viable? Uh, you said your next step was like writing the letter um, and getting Medicaid approval. I was just wondering if there was like a timeline on that because I know working with government. Kind of yeah, we're trying to feel. So the challenge we were waiting to see what happened in November, right? Nothing, nothing really changed at the state level in terms of leadership. Um, and you have to remember that the current administration, you know, the facts are is that there was a governor with a shotgun on a pickup truck saying that you know he didn't want illegals to come into the state. And that's the reality of the situation. In reality, is he more tolerant? You know, is he more uh, amenable to a financial argument? That I don't know. So we're trying to put our feelers out right now between great, the, so we have our legislative teams at Grady working in the background to try to figure out, well, what do the numbers look like? Can we make such a you know, strong argument from a financial perspective that it's kind of a no-brainer and you'd, you'd be really crazy to turn it down regardless of what your political opinions are? Um, but that's kind of where we're at, because you have to do your research, right? You can't just go and say, hey, this is what we want. You gotta figure out who you're talking to, what, you know, what, are, what are their guardrails? Like, what are they willing to tolerate? What are they not willing to tolerate? You know, what's the end of the spectrum? Kind of where are you working in with the confines and guardrails and that? Um, to see how you can make it a win-win, right? So that's the ultimate goal is trying to find a win-win issue. Uh, even with scope of practice, right? So we can't work in isolation. We need to work in teams, right? I don't want to do every single laceration that comes in the door. Or I don't want to take care of every single person that comes in with DKA. If it's straightforward DKA, like that can be done by one of our team members, right? But I need to be around if something's not right. So I'm all for team-based care. So it's like finding those guardrails and the win-wins is where we move advocacy and policy forward. Yeah? That's always easier said than done, right? Yeah. I have a quick question. I'm Mariah. Um, I really don't want to diverge from the dialysis talk. And, of course, if anybody else has any questions or comments, we can jump back to it. But um, I think... Many of us have discussed um, populations that we're interested in, and I wanted to know if there was any other projects that you're working on um, for any other populations or political strategies. For example, I'm very interested in substance use and, and any um, um, any discussions or any projects that you have going. Yeah, so right in my biggest interest, kind of based on the work that we do, is more access to care, right? 
So lately that has involved women's health, right? So that's been a big issue in, in Georgia, ensuring that women get access both pre and postpartum, right? So pre, uh, ahead of time, if you, know, you feel like you're a high-risk pregnancy, those sort of things, right? Working within uh, women's ability to determine what they want to do with their, with their body um, and their pregnancy within certain guardrails. And then um, postnatal care, we've been able to expand coverage to a full 12 months, and that's changed over the last uh, two years. I believe last year it was six months, and then this year, because the, the uh, budget had a windfall of funds, they were able to expand it out to 12 months. Um, other areas, it really is, so advocacy is most effective when you find something that you're passionate about, right? So what, would, what, what did you say your things you were interested in, rural care, or? Yes, I'm, I'm from I'm sure that you already looked at all of our fabulous videos um, from uh, Orientation Month. Um, I'm from Kentucky. Uh, there's a huge substance use. Uh, uh, I mean, it's everywhere, but it's, yeah. it's um, pretty heavily laden in eastern Kentucky. It's where I'm from. I'm very passionate about substance use um, in that area. So it's just, it is something that I'm interested in. Um, I'm already working with one of the positions here, but I wondered if there was anything kind of up the, the next round on the ladder, if anything. If we could discuss it on Physicians Day at the Capitol. Um, but specifically, that's me. That's that's. So for the, substance use story, I mean, so you'll be happier. I think you'll be happy to know that. I guess the administration has gotten rid of the X waiver, right? So anybody can prescribe buprenorphine now, um, and so it lowers the threshold into getting MAT, right? So be able to get into treatment and then bridged to treatment. Um, the opioid crisis is, is still a very big deal. I was listening on the news on the way up here, right? It still accounts for I think the largest portion of of, of accidental deaths. You know, above motor vehicle accidents, firearms, all this other stuff, right? Uh, so still a very huge issue. I don't know off the top of my head if that's one of, if that's one of the talking points for the physicians day at the Capitol. However, um, what it depends on what your interests are, right? So if you want to, and I think, and I think most of this policy stuff happens at the state level. Take a look at the MAG policy and compendium. See if you feel like it adequately represents what you feel should be important. Um, and that's on the, it's on the website. If you do, if you have trouble, just let me know. I'll send you a copy. Um, and then the next step would be being abreast of issues that come up at the Capitol, right? So either if you're so passionate, you can find a legislator to carry a bill for something that you think needs to change, uh, or if there's already legislation in process, trying to figure out how you can impart change on that. So one way you can do that is being involved with the legislative advocates, so the lobbyists for MAG. Um, for GSAP, they work together for the College of Medicine Physicians, working with other organizations like addiction medicine within Georgia, um, and trying to figure out other stakeholder groups like pa physician, uh, sorry, patient advocacy groups, will also help strengthen that alliance right towards that. But really, it's trying to figure out: is there policy that's coming forward? Do you have idea for policy that you want someone to carry? Uh, and then, how do you build your groundwork? So, kind of what we did with the the uh, dialysis piece is like. Build a groundwork foundation that you can have this coalition of people who share your perspective and share your passion, uh, and then have a game plan. So you got to figure out, well, like I said, is there a policy that's already there that needs to be advocated for to get passed, carried across the finish line, or do you need to craft it from the ground up? Is that helpful? And then a lot of this, I hate reinventing the wheel. So figure out what's been done in other states and, and in other organizations, and then see how you can parlay on top of that. So you're not, as an individual, it's extremely hard. So you have to build that coalition. Shami, uh, first of all, thanks so much for coming and uh, imparting uh, your, your guidance on this topic. Um, I, I really want to speak to the residents that are here. Um, you know, I, I've been here now for 18 years, and I remember when I first came out of residency in 2002, um, you know, moving to Georgia, not really understanding any of this, had no introduction to any of this type of advocacy or the importance of 
of you know political work and legislative work and really had given up didn't have any confidence in the process but um, you know if you take a step back especially for the people in the room of the things that have happened over the last few years um, you know tort reform uh, huge uh, providing protection for uh, physicians uh, when, when they practice in emergency care you know preserve access to your point um, trauma care you know that was a big thing that happened uh, probably about 10 so 10 or plus years or so within the state cardiac arrest centers now actually having uh, designation just like we have a level one or level two trauma center we have out of hospital cardiac arrest uh, you know the stroke work um, so it really is great to hear the different um, ideas that are coming from the residents in the room because uh, I can tell you it really does make a difference having been to the Capitol and actually speaking to the legislators they, they actually do listen um, but we're not visible enough um, there's plenty of other groups that are in front of the legislators much more than physicians are um, so strongly encourage you guys to participate and just want to thank you again for coming yeah absolutely so it's tough. I get where you're at. You're the first first part of your training, right? So there's so much you need to clinically learn to be a strong physician, and you will be. And, and, and this is not the most important thing, I, I admit, that's probably on your plate right now. But just keep it in mind. Like I said, those stories are important. The things that you're passionate about is important. Don't forget it as you're in the trenches learning how to be a great emergency physician, um, because you never know when it's going to be needed. And so for me, I've been involved since I was a medical student. So this is kind of like my extracurricular, right? I don't golf. Uh, I do policy. Uh, and maybe I should rethink things here a little bit. But um, so this has been my outlet and something I've done in, you know, in adjacent to it. So I'll encourage you to, to continue working hard because uh, without being a strong emergency physician, you can't really do anything else. You can't be a leader in anything. And so doing that is the most important thing you can do. And then on top of that, thinking about things that you really care about and how will you leave your mark on emergency medicine in the world is something you should think about long term. Do we have time to talk about dialysis more? Is yeah, what do, what do you have? Let's, let's do one more question on yeah. dialysis, and then we'll transition to uh, just uh, more of a speaking session. Okay. Last, last yeah, thanks, because I've always been fascinated with it, the seemingly almost arbitrary nature that the federal government has decided to pay for patients on dialysis. And correct me if I'm wrong, I, I don't, know, don't know of any other chronic condition that the US government says, yes, if you have this, we will cover you for that. I mean, on a state level, it seems that almost every state covers pregnant patients in prenatal care. Um, but I'm struggling to kind of find another chronic ongoing condition that has been well accepted to receive treatment for it. And even the, uh, the origin story about how Medicare decided to start covering dialysis is like fascinating to me, um, which if you don't know the story, kind of look it up. But um, like, my question, I guess, being is, are there any other chronic conditions if you're a, a citizen but have no insurance? And let's say you have a horrible cardiomyopathy and you need a, an LVAD that the government will pay for the same as uh, end stage renal disease and dialysis, like we'll pay for a destination LVAD for patients. Like what happens to those people? Um, do they not get LVADs if they need it just because they can't afford it? Do the hospitals pay for it and eat it? Um, is there you know, government program set up to help pay for that other than dish funds? Um, because I mean, that, that would be a large kind of cost, I think. Um, and I don't know, maybe uh, hopefully have some ideas or, or even examples of other things that we cover other than dialysis, again, which seems totally arbitrary to me that we're, the government, US government's paying for. Um, I'm glad that I've been able to identify such a strong advocate for getting dialysis covered in uh, Northeast Georgia. So thank you for volunteering. 
Um, you clearly know so much about this. Uh, I don't, and I can't think of any other condition that is treated the same way. And it probably has to do with some, you know, the, the rapidity with which you die if you don't get dialyzed. Whereas, you know, folks with end-stage heart disease can come in on milnarone drips, and their progression is much slower, but still pretty fast. But dialysis, literally, within a few weeks of not getting dialyzed, you're going to die, right? Uh, due to volume overload. So it, ha it probably has something to do with that, but I can't think of another condition, which is what makes this so straightforward because the challenge you run into with policy development where is everyone's gonna be like, well, what about this? What about that? What about this other thing? And you get very easily derailed and sidetracked from the main objective you're trying to accomplish. And so the beauty of this is that it's very focused, right? It doesn't include all these other conditions for which there's no other pathway or template to, to build upon. Uh, and at least helps this one small group. Yeah. So it's a, it's a blessing and a curse. I mean, ideally, everybody should be covered, right? I mean, like we should come up with some, some, some sort of way of universal coverage, like most other developed nations. But here we are. We haven't. Um, but what can we do in the moment right now is kind of the way I think about it. You know, it's kind of the incremental change. Let's, let's do this first, and then let's figure out how we can take care of the heart failure patients. Um, so I'm going to end the CME portion of this uh, course. So thank you, Dr. Doss, for coming and speaking to us. Definitely appreciate it. My pleasure. <laughs> um, so for anybody online, um, we can end the Zoom. We can end the recording. Um, and we'll end the microphones, thankfully. Um, and then if you don't mind sticking around for another 20 minutes or so and just uh, uh, letting us ask some questions about your career and, and development and whatnot, I'd appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely.